Welcome. You're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. This is your host, John Marchalero. And this week, my guest is theoretical physicist, Dr. Jim Gates. Jim, good afternoon. Good afternoon, John. It's nice to be here with you and your audience. Well, thank you for joining me on the show. Uh, as an introduction for the listeners, you are a theoretical physicist and currently, this is a mouthful, currently the Brown Theoretical Physics, currently the Brown Theoretical Physics Center Director, Ford Foundation Professor of Physics, Affiliate Mathematics Professor, and Watson Institute for International Studies and Public Affairs, Faculty Fellow at Brown University. You're known for your work in supersymmetry, supergravity, and superstring theory. Wow. Pretty cool stuff. I want to ask well, you about that. Sure. So, John, I, I I have a very strange life. I effectively have four simultaneous careers, and that's what those titles are partly related to. I noticed. Can you fill us in on all that? Sure. So my longest career is actually uh, education. I am in my 42nd consecutive year teaching uh, university level students, either physics or mathematics. Uh, my next longest career is uh, 45 years long. I've been doing the uh, kind of mathematics that surrounds uh, string theory and super string theory uh, since I got my PhD in 1977. I like to tell people I'm not Sheldon Cooper, but uh, uh, and I don't pretend to be him, but there are real people who do that stuff in real life, and I'm one of those adults that has done that. Um, the, my next career is actually in um, 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 public outreach. So I have been appearing in science documentaries since 1995. Uh, the first one was following me on the Trans-Siberian Railroad as I rode from Moscow to the middle of Siberia to make a scientific presentation on a train. And so it was my version of Dr. Zhivago. And then my youngest career is in public policy. So I have uh, in 2000 and I guess it was 2009, I received an invitation to serve as a, a member of the U.S. President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology to the Obama administration. And almost simultaneously with that appointment, I was also invited to serve on the Maryland State Board of Education. So I did both of those simultaneously. And that's partly why I'm uh, associated with the Watson Institute at Brown. I still do public policy work. In fact, uh, recently I gave a speech uh, at Fordham Law School where I uh, made a presentation connecting Albert Einstein to some decisions made by the U.S. Supreme Court. So I live a very strange and interesting life. I want to get to all of those, uh, hopefully in the first half of the show. In the second half of the show, I want to ask you about all these uh, super uh, theories, string and, and symmetry and gravity. But before we get really rolling, I wanted to ask you about your early years. What inspired you when you were younger to become a physicist? Certainly. And a lot of the stuff is online uh, at YouTube. People can put my name in. But uh, let me tell the story. It's my origin story, as I like to talk about superheroes. Yeah. So uh, it starts with me at four years old. I was then living on a military base in Canada, St. John's, Newfoundland. My dad was a veteran in the U.S. Army of 27 years. So he and my mom and uh, at that point, uh, my two siblings all moved to St. John's around 1954 or so. And my mother took me to see a movie. 
It may be the first movie I ever saw in life, but it is most certainly the first movie I remember seeing. The title of the movie is Space Waves, and it's about astronauts and space travel. It's a really weird little movie. I saw it recently at YouTube. It's a love story, a science fiction story, and a murder mystery all rolled into one. But as a four-year-old child, the thing that fascinated me was there was this, I heard about this thing called science, and it got you to to this most incredible places and fancy devices and electricity and rockets. And so I became fascinated by science at age four. The the family story goes that evening uh, when I got home and my dad got home from work, um, I'm told that I tried to explain to my father how rockets worked, which, of course, since we didn't have smartphones in those days, I'm sure that would have been a hilarious uh, video. At age eight, we had moved. Uh, I was then living in El Paso, Texas. My father, uh, I was beginning elementary school and learning how to read. And uh, kind of in a family tradition, mathematics and arithmetic was really easy for me. But learning to read was actually much more of a challenge. And so dad, uh, in consultation with my teacher, um, decided uh, to bring home some books so that I could have books at home that uh, I would be very interested in reading and therefore it would fire my capacity to be a reader, a better reader. And so he bought him four books on space travel by a man named Willie Lay, uh, who specialized in children's books about space travel. Now, this is before anyone had actually been out in space, and my father remembered my excitement uh, when I was at age four. I read those books she- too. Willie I'm Lay. sorry? Yeah, I read those books too. Oh my God, you're one of the few people I've met who actually knows about those things. Oh yeah, yeah. My, 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 my startup movie was Forbidden Planet. <laughs> well, that's a bit that's a bit later. That's like 19... No, I guess it's 54. earlier, actually. It's 54. one of my favorite science fiction movies. Yeah. So that's really my start in, in science was basically that. Uh, my dad brought home some books, some uh, an Encyclopedia Britannica. And so around age nine or so, I saw the Schrodinger equation, even though I didn't know what it was. I could tell it was mathematics because it had equal signs in it. But the rest of it has the same goal as Greek to me. Cool, cool. So if you were you're into Willie Lay, you must have been into some science fiction as well. Absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, it starts off. Ah, so let me tell you a story which you, you and your audience may find interesting. Um, uh, in that period uh, when I was also reading about Willie Lay, uh, I also started reading science fiction. And there was this one author who had a series of books about a character named Lucky Star with the last name spelled with two R's. And these also helped me become better readers. So fast forward about 25 or 30 years, I'm in New York City uh, at um, an event hosted by Neil deGrasse Tyson at the American Museum of Natural History and the uh, and the uh, planetarium there, mm-hmm. the Hayden Planetarium. It's called the Asimov uh, Annual Lecture, uh, Plenary uh, Annual Lecture. It's actually a panel discussion. And I was uh, one of the speakers and Isaac Asimov's daughter was in the audience. And so I decided to tell them about how I learned to read by these works by uh, uh, about Lucky Star that were written by a gentleman who used the name Paul French. But Paul French was a pseudonym for Isaac Asimov. So, so I got a chance to think the one of the people who helped boost me as a reader in second and third grade, his uh, daughter had helped endow this event. Wow. Wow, pretty cool story. So let's jump ahead to your bachelor's degree. So I noticed on your bio that you had a 
a bachelor, dual bachelor's in mathematics and physics. Was that because you were, I says, I suspect, uh, really in love with math? Or as, <laughs> as most physicists grudgingly agree, gee, I got to learn this math to do physics. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's actually different for us. First of all, mathematics kind of seems to be kind of runs in my family. My grandfather could neither read nor write, but he could do arithmetic. My dad never finished high school, but I remember as a kid watching him study uh, trigonometry and some plain geometry for calculus. So we kind of like math in my family. So when I got to MIT, um, I had, first of all, gone to a high school, Jones High School, Orlando, Florida, segregated, uh, essentially all black high school. But I had a fantastic physics teacher, a gentleman by the name of Mr. Freeman Coney. And in 11th grade, I was the only uh, junior in the class. I took this physics class. And I said, it's not all of science I want to do. It's only physics that I want to do. So I, I went to MIT with a passion for becoming a physicist. But when I got there, my grades in mathematics were better. And so I declared myself a mathematics major because I knew grades would be important if I was going to go to graduate school. But I kept taking physics courses on the side because that's really what I enjoyed. My senior year there, a friend of mine, a young woman by the name of Inez Hope, Ask me early in the senior year, what degree are you going to get in the spring? And I said, well, I'm a math major, so I'm going to get a bachelor's in mathematics. But she, because she was a friend, she said, yeah, but you took all these physics courses. What's that about? And I said, well, I just like physics. And she said, I bet you've taken enough that they'll let you get a degree in physics also. And this was stunning to me. I had never had the idea that in four years you could get two degrees. So we went over to the physics headquarters. They looked at my transcript, said, you know, you look just like a physics major, except you have to take the lab courses your senior year and write a thesis, undergraduate thesis, and you can get a bachelor's. So that's how I wound up with two degrees in, in four years at MIT. It was totally an accident. How far did you go in mathematics? Did you get up through differential equations and then oh, Beyond beyond that. At MIT, that's sort of like entry-level stuff. Okay. Uh, but uh, I, um, how far did I, I got to real analysis and um, fluid flow, uh, um, partial differential equations, integral equations. Uh, Riemannian so well geometry, maybe. Stuff. Riemannian, I'm sorry? Riemannian geometry. Riemannian geometry, yeah, yeah. I got to all of that as an undergraduate. And just wow. because I love mathematics. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. You got setups great. Um, so you mentioned that there was a, a, um, a teacher who was instrumental, your 11th grade physics teacher, and oh, you yeah. were a strong science fiction. I'm finding this to be a common theme amongst the physicists and <laughs> astrophysicists that I study. And, and that's not surprising to me because uh, if you're going to do physics, it turns out, in many ways, um, you have to learn how to support your imagination, especially during your teenager year, their teenage years. And uh, I was kind of an unusual person. I was the valedictorian in my class, but I also had constructed uh, an app. I, the app is called Jim Gates, and it runs on top of the Sylvester Gates core. And so um, <laughs> we, um, this app, which is sort of, you know, really just me growing and changing, um, also made sure that... Uh, uh, that that I was engaged socially uh, well beyond what you would ordinarily expect a valedictorian of a class to do. And that personality was partly encouraged by my physics teacher. Excellent. Excellent. So then you went right on to get your uh, PhD at, um, let's see, where was it? MIT. MIT. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, uh, so when I was applying to graduate school, 
I had a bunch of choices. Uh, MIT was one of them. I also had been admitted to a program at Stanford, and I was thinking seriously about that and a couple of other choices. And in the end, I made my choice by a, a most scientific, quote, unquote, method. Namely, I looked at my luggage. I figured out how much trouble it would be to ship across country. And I decided that I should stay at MIT. I have a question about that, because uh, when I went through that process, uh, it was very discouraged for undergraduates to move on uh, to the same school and graduate school, because the professors tend to always think of you as that as that skinny undergraduate who doesn't know anything. Whereas if you change schools and come in with a bachelor's degree from MIT under your belt, you get a little more respect at a new school. Well, that might be the case, but oh, I was discouraged. I mean, there were people, certainly people saying, gee, you should go elsewhere. But uh, first of all, I had been, just as I had been unusual in high school, I was also kind of unusual at MIT. Um, well, first of all, I got admitted in 1969. That was the first time that MIT had admitted more than a handful of African-American students. So I was part of a culture change at MIT. Uh, it was also the time of the hippies and the anti-war protests. It was the finish of the civil rights movement, the rise of the of the so-called Black Revolution with the Black Panthers and Republic of New Africa and the Nation of Islam. And so I was in the I was an undergraduate right in the middle of all of that stuff going on. And as you might suspect, given what I described about my high school years, I was, let me just say, not unmindful of all that was happening outside of academia. And so because of that, uh, I doubt very few of my faculty who taught me actually got to know me as an undergraduate. Okay, that explains it. All right. So um, before we close out the first segment, I have one more question for you. You mentioned uh, in the uh, introduction that you served on the U.S. President's Council of Advisors for Science and Technology. What did that involve? I'm curious about how much feedback you provided and how seriously they took it and how that all worked. Yes. Um, so that was a seven year uh, again, quote unquote, term of incarceration. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, it was amazing for me because effectively what it did was to polish off a part of my professional development that had been going on for about 20 years. That is that I had been advising the National Science Foundation. I had some involvement with the Department of Defense, uh, several other agencies, the Department of Energy, uh, some private corporations. And so I had been inadvertently building up a portfolio of uh, policy uh, experience. And so when I got these invitations, which were stunning to me because I, I didn't ever plan to have a policy career, uh, serving on the advisory council uh, effectively was like going back to graduate school and perhaps getting a master's in policy. Uh, the council dealt with an amazing array of issues that would be of interest to the government and then, of course, the particular administration, the Obama administration, which believed in evidence-based evidence policy decision-making. And concept. so they, I'm sorry? What a concept. Yeah, who knew, right? Who knew? <laughs> but because of that mindset of the administration, they asked the council to look at an amazing array of issues. And the issues always had uh, one character uh, in, uh, that was always the same. Where does science and technology uh, cross the boundary and have impact on public policy? 
so we did all kinds of things like STEM, edu- STEM education was a big concern. And I was uh, one of the people who wrote, uh, co-authored and led uh, several reports that the council made in that domain, some of which had amazing impact from my perspective, including on the laws of the United States. So the last authorization for federal support of K-12 education is called the Every Student Succeeds Act, or ESSA. Some of the some of the law, some of the language for that law uh, is stuff that I by hand wrote into some of our PCAS reports. So I like to tell people that I have lived my dream, which I didn't know I had, about Schoolhouse Rock, where you see how a bill becomes the law. So I had I had a hand in doing that. Uh, we did stuff on uh, Wi-Fi access on healthcare, just an amazing array. So I basically learned a lot about what it means to provide advice at the very highest levels of government uh, across issues where STEM and technology are important. That's great. That's great. We, we kind of hear about things that go against that trend these days. It's uh, great to know that you were doing that and uh, what a contribution. Thank you. Well, thank you. And, uh, you know, I, for me, um, since my father served 27 years in the U.S. military and the U.S. Army, I felt it a very enormous privilege to be able to give back to my country just a small measure of what has been given to me in my life in terms of the opportunities I've had and what I've been able to accomplish. So for me, it was it was an amazing amount of work. In fact, it was the most dominant thing on my calendar, even though I was a college professor and doing research. I was really heavily into policy. And that continues to this day, by the way. Um, I'm still involved with forensic science uh, policymaking. All right. Well, very cool. We've come to the end of the first segment. In the second half of the show, I want to ask you about uh, some science. But first, we have to take a short break. Folks, we'll be back in 60 seconds. I'm chatting with theoretical physicist Dr. Jim Gates. Stay with us. Today, our sponsor is Linode. Linode helps you design, develop, and deploy in the cloud. You can build dedicated CPU, distributed applications, hosted services, websites, and CI slash CD environments. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. Linode is focused on simplicity, service, and value. The goal is to maximize the benefit you receive from your cloud by making it cost-effective to deploy robust compute, storage, and networking services that meet your ever-changing performance needs. Featured are native SSD storage, a 40-gigabit network, and industry-leading processors. Pick from any of 10 worldwide data centers, including the newest in Toronto. Pay only for what you use with hourly billing across all plans and add-on services. Plus, 24 by 7 live customer support is always just a phone call away. You'll be able to deploy and maintain your infrastructure simply and cost-effectively. Plus, Linode's tools make it easy to provision, secure, monitor, and backup your cloud. To learn more, visit linode.com slash BGM. That's L-I-N-O-D-E dot com slash BGM. And receive a $20 credit when you use promo code BGM2019. Thanks, Linode, for being our sponsor. We're back. I'm chatting with theoretical physicist Dr. Jim Gates. All right. Now, this gets into the good stuff. I wanted to ask you to give us a sort of an introduction to and an update on string theory. It's been around for a long time. It's had its ups and downs. Can you give us sort of a scientific American overview of the state of string theory uh, today? 
Certainly. Well, first of all, let me pay tribute to your comment about the good stuff, because that's what I've always thought about this since I was a teenager. This is the good stuff. That's why I chose MIT as a place to go to school. I told people I was going to a place where you only had to study the good stuff. <laughs> so, string, so string theory itself is has an, an extraordinary history. Um, it, uh, it broke out into the public consciousness at a time that was very premature, in my opinion, and that was due to the efforts of some successful books, you know, Brian Greene's being the most prominent among those. Um, but it is not what people think it is. Uh, these days, uh, that early breakout has also generated sort of a backlash, and so they're these sort of an, they're, uh, they're anti-stringers in some sense, which, to my mind, they're kind of like the anti-vaxxers a little bit. Um, but the, the point is that string theory contributes to contribute uh, in ways that are just unexpected. It hasn't done what people had said it would do, so it hasn't run the table, so to speak, if you're a poker player. But it has continued, continued to contribute in ways that are just stunning. So let me try to give some examples of that. Parts of physics that we know are very well established uh, include uh, a theory called quantum electrodynamics, invented uh, in part by Richard Feynman, uh, who, by the way, I had a great, the great privilege of being a postdoc in this group when I was at Caltech. But uh, QC, QED um, and the techniques that come out of QED are, uh, are what allow us to make the most accurate predictions of any part of science in the history of the planet. There are predictions that come from quantum field theory, as it's called, that are tested to better than one part in a billion and also predicted by the mathematics to better than one part in a billion. There's no other piece of science that has ever been invented where you can make these statements. Now, these calculations to get this kind of accuracy are just incredibly hairy and difficult and complicated and time-consuming and burn up computer times. Some of the ideas from string theory things that are called ADS-CFT, uh, things that about uh, twisters that have come from string theory, are showing us ways to master these new calculations and therefore um, make more accurate predictions than ever thought possible before. So that's an output from string theory that you just don't hear about. But it's been well known in the physics community, in this part of the community that works on this, for over a decade. Other ideas from string theory that uh, have had an impact are actually... And totally removed from physics uh, entirely. Uh, there are ideas uh, about uh, information processing that seem to relate to things in string theory. There are ideas in mathematics, because string theory basically is mathematics, uh, that have been advanced by string theory. So, for example, and this is a story that comes from Brian Greene's book, uh, there's a prediction that string theory makes that the mathematicians had made calculations on. The mathematicians got one number, the String theory's got another number. The mathematician went back and checked their calculations. They found out that string theory and the physicists were right. So string theory has been doing things the entire time that the public has been talking about it, but it's not the things that you hear about uh, in the public domain. Does string theory provide a sound mathematical connection between quantum theory and general relativity, or is that still tenuous? So there are physicists who would argue with that statement, but in my opinion, it is the only sound basis I see to allow us to make progress be, uh, connecting quantum theory and general relativity. I've also read, I've read Brian Breen's book, I'm a sort of an armchair physicist, um, that string theory predicts uh, something on the order of 10 to the 500 universes, which yeah, makes, gives some people uh, a nuts of stomach. 
<laughs> yeah, you know, I hear people say that, but I, I, I mean, I have a radical view about string theory, which is uh, uh, something I, I like to call, I'm, sometimes I refer my, to myself as a refusenik. Uh, most of these comments that people make like that uh, are associated with the idea that strings are objects that exist in more than four dimensions. But in fact, in, in the late 80s, a small number of us, so four, three different groups actually, showed that string theory can be viewed only as four-dimensional theories. What changes in this point of view is you don't know what we call the gauge groups. And um, actually, I would prefer that the number of consistent strings be infinite because that would increase the probability that one of them is probably our universe. Yeah, uh, there is some discussion about how the tendency to adopt the idea of many, many, many universes and ours is just statistically that happens the one that supports life is a sort of a way out of the anthropic principle. And there's a healthy discussion on both sides of that. It is. um, So the the problem there is a there is a fundamental almost philosophical problem with thinking about extra dimensions which was identified by Sheldon Glashow in the uh, in the science documentary called the elegant universe because Shelley says if essentially that if you can't actually he I'm paraphrasing if you can't accurately make predictions of all possible strings then it can't be science and he's right this is a principle that's deeply embedded in science called falsifiability, and no one has ever figured out over the entire domain of string theories or extra dimensions how you would falsify them. Right. Dr. Brian Keating told me he's starting to get into that some more. Yeah, I've actually done work on the four-dimensional strings. That's how I know so much about them. Um, so is there a, a problem with string theory and dark energy being incompatible? I read about that briefly. Oh, my goodness, yes. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> I hit a hot button. <laughs> you've, been well. you've been reading very well. There's an enormous problem. In fact, it's the biggest problem in theoretical phys- physics for some of us. So dark energy or the acceleration in the expansion of the universe is most easily described if you take an idea that Einstein proposed, and this is thing called the cosmological constant, which even Einstein actually got wrong and right and oscillated. Um, but if you t- use this idea of the cosmological constant, then you can explain why the universe is accelerating in its expansion. On the other hand, if you look at the equations of string theory and try to introduce this mathematical quantity into the equations, the equations kind of rebel and become mathematically inconsistent at the most trivial level. And so there's this enormous tension between the observation of the accelerating expansion and the mathematics of string theory, which, as I said, I I see no alternative uh, but to use this kind of mathematics to get us to successfully marry quantum theory and uh, general relativity. So this is an enormous tension. We're going to have to leave it there. Um, we, don't, we don't have enough time to explore that further, but that's an interesting topic. The reason I wanted to move on is because I wanted to hear your thoughts about what supersymmetry is. <laughs> well, first of all, supersymmetry is uh, how I got my PhD thesis. I wrote the first at MIT, which uh, this may not be the first thesis in the world or even in the country, but at MIT in 1977, I wrote the first thesis about supersymmetry. 
Uh, I was the only person on campus at the time interested in the idea, but I was also either had good luck or great intuition to understand that this idea would probably profoundly impact theoretical physics. And now 40 years later, it still is. So supersymmetry uh, is a principle. It's not a model. And that's one thing that one often hears uh, in the popular discussion about the LHC and the first and second scientific runs, which have been concluded there. People were like, a lot of people uh, were expecting that supersymmetry would obviously be found at the LHC. Yeah, nothing two- yet, right? Yeah. In 2006, I wrote an article where I said I did not expect it. And I think I may be the only person I know who wrote such an article who was in physics, deeply invested in supersymmetry. And um, the models that were being tested, I didn't find realistic at all. In fact, there are scientific reasons, uh, one of them called the electron dipole moment, which suggests that the masses of supersymmetry will be what's called tens of TEVs, not six or seven TEV, which is the paltry area where the first scientific run of the LEC tested. And even now, we're maybe a factor of two greater, which by my intuition, I don't expect this. I didn't expect the second to be also successful. So supersymmetry is elegant, but it also explains certain really strange things about the structure of the universe. And this one of the strangest is, what does it mean to have a state of nothingness? Among all the theories that are out there in fundamental physics, supersymmetry is the only one I know that has something to say about that question. And so for these reasons, I'm confident that supersymmetry will be found, but it may not be in colliders. And in fact, some of the work that uh, I'm currently involved in is we're looking at maybe there could be astrophysical signatures. Ah, so supersymmetry supposes that there's not just in the standard model, the particles we know about, but additional particles, and they start with the letter S, right? <laughs> yes, so there are. So in our world, we have the electron. In a supersymmetric mathematical world, there's an, uh, there are objects called selectrons. Uh, in our world, there are quarks. Uh, in this mathematics of supersymmetry, there are objects called squarks. Are the masses uh, different? Yes, they would have to be. If this mathematics is going to be consistent with our universes, these partnerings that we talk about have to have enormous mass differences. But by the way, um, it's not just adding adding the letter S. You also sometimes have to add the ending I-N-O. So in our world, we have photons, but in the mathematics world of supersymmetry, we have photinos. In our world, we have gluons, which keep the quarks together. But in the mathematical world of supersymmetry, we have gluinos. What does that mean? What does that I-N-O suffix indicate? So the way that it works is the S that you talked about earlier is anything that is matter in our universe, we expect it to kind of have this super partner, it's called. And so we put an S in front of it. So electron to electron, quark to squark, muon to smuon. But there are things in our world that are not matter that carry forces, like the photon is a force carrier. So all force carriers, you don't put the S in front of the name, you put the I-N-L after the name. So it's photon. That's from from Italian, meaning little, doesn't it? That's exactly right. Yeah, I remember something. (laughs) 
I like to joke with people that uh, in the weak interaction, we have particles that are called the Z and the W particles. So in a supersymmetrical university, there would have to be a superpartner to the Z called the Zeno, but there would also have to be a superpartner to the W, and its name is spelled W-I-N-O. So I like to tell people, if you, ever see, <laughs> if you ever see a headline in a newspaper saying W-I-N-O, seen in Geneva, then you're not be talking about an alcoholic specialist. Oh, cool. I like that. I like that. Well, one more question. Um, supersymmetry seems to solve a problem uh, with uh, perturbation theory. Can you tell me about that? Ah, my goodness, yes. Um, I have to tell you, the question you ask about perturbation theory is also the source of my strongest initial attraction for why I thought these theories were interesting when I was a graduate student at MIT before I, before I got my PhD in 77. So perturbation theory is a scheme of calculating quantum corrections that Richard Feynman, um, uh, and let's see, Richard Feynman, Tamanaga, and Schwinger, three physicists were awarded a Nobel Prize for developing this technique. And it's the technique that allows us to calculate thing, properties of small particles to better than one part in a billion. But perturbation theory turns out to be, as I mentioned earlier, extraordinarily complicated to carry out. And the really weird thing about supersymmetry is that the perturbative calculations in the context of supersymmetry are simpler than they are in any other system. They don't give infinite results for the sum either. Well, you'd still get some infinities, but some of the infinities are banished in supersymmetrical theories. So what's the prospects for supersymmetry? Is it on good footing with all the physicists, or is it still... Well, with hardcore physicists who do this stuff, uh, there has been some disappointment that it has not been found so far. But there, unlike what you hear in the popular debate, there is no wholesale abandoning of the idea. Okay, so we're running out of time. I have just two further questions for you. Um, I had not been aware of something called supergravity. I'm I'm aware generally of general relativity because all the TV shows and science shows show you a trampoline with a bowling ball in the middle and how mass curves space-time and space-time tells mass how to move. And it's all very complex mathematics uh, if you get into it through differential geometry and all that fancy stuff that you've studied. So how does supergravity relate to general relativity? I'm curious. Sure. Well, thank you for asking the question, because uh, when I was at Harvard, uh, that's something I spent about three years studying uh, together with a colleague named Warren Siegel. And at the time, we developed the world's most sophisticated and intricate mathematical view of what supergravity is. So let me try to uh, say it in the Scientific American uh, article-type language. So Einstein said that space and time, in his theory, are tied together. Well, actually, he didn't say it. It was his teacher, but he adopted his teacher, uh, uh, Peter Minkowski's view. Um, So what supergravity is, is a following, because he says, if Einstein can marry space and time, could we put more coordinates in? But these extra coordinates are not the kind that you see in the extra-dimensional discussions. They're not even numbers. They're things that are called Grassmann variables. And so supergravity is the differential geometry 
of a manifold where part, yeah, part of it's space-time, but the other part of the manifold are these weird mathematical objects. And that's what Warren Siegel and I wrote um, a number of research papers in the early, I'm sorry, in the late 70s, the early 80s about. It's also what got us both to appointments at Caltech to work in the group of Richard Feynman and Marie Gaumont. So if you believe in curvature, you have to curve these extra weird things too. And so you get a theory of gravitation out of that. And that's the theory of supergravity. Now that's the mathematical way that is described. The way it was actually discovered is a little bit different. Uh, there were other physicists, um, Van Nieuwenhuizen, uh, Friedman, and Ferrara, uh, Vess, uh, I'm sorry, Zemino and Desser, who started from a view that's less geometrical. Um, and the idea was that just like in supersymmetry, for every particle, you have to have a partner particle. You, so you start with Einstein's theory of gravity. It has the graviton, that particle we hear about so much in Star Trek. And if you add supersymmetry, that has to have a partner. That partner is called the gravitino. So that was the initial birth of supergravity theory. So let me see if I understand. Is supergravity sort of an extension of general relativity rather than an equal and opposing view? Very good. You get an A+. plus. All right. Well, I have time for one more question. So you've been around for a long time doing this uh, since your Ph.D., what would you characterize as sort of like the big next thing? What's the next breakthrough or the thing that people are excited about and working on so we can close the show with a with a big bang? <laughs> well, the next thing has actually been occurring for a while. It's connecting fundamental physics to information theory. Now, I th when this first started occurring, I was very doubtful because it started with a physicist named John Wheeler, and he had a theory called it from bit, where he said that essentially it, namely the entire universe, was somehow connected to bits, uh, you know, ones and zeros like we see in information theory. And I remember being young and thinking, God, what a weird idea. Uh, in the last 20, 15 to 20 years, this idea has actually emerged from my own research where I've seen direct connections between bits ones and zeros, and the structure of the supersymmetry equations that we think describe the universe. Other people have seen this in other ways. Uh, their, their information theory has been popping up around discussions of black holes and firewalls. It's been popping up in quantum entanglement. And so I think the next huge breakthrough is to understand the fundamental relation between the laws of our nature and bits. All right. Very cool. Well, this has been a great discussion. Thank you for joining me. Well, thank you, John, for the opportunity. This was fantastic. Uh, listeners, I hope you enjoyed the discussion. Uh, Dr. Gates, uh, tell listeners how they can contact you if they wish. So um, thank you for the opportunity. Um, I'm actually, I tell people just to use the Google machine. <laughs> you know, just go to Google, type in James Gates Physics, and you will find me. Uh, particularly now, because I have a book coming out in the fall about Einstein and how he got famous in the universe. So I'm online somewhere, sometime. I live a 24-7, 365 kind of life. All right, cool. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks for coming by. You've been listening to John Marcellero and theoretical physicist Dr. Jim Gates from Brown University. We'll see you again next week. <laughs>